Jeffrey, let's begin with this question that comes from Chicago. Wasn't there another women's softball league that played in Chicago during the 40s and 50s besides the All-American Girls Baseball League? Now, that's assuming that people knew that there was the All-American Girls Baseball League. Tell us what the other team was. Well, okay, so first of all, I think many people do know about the All-American Girls Baseball League because that that was the one that was featured in the 1992 movie A League of Their Own. So that's some people became familiar with it. But Mm -hmm. yes, there was... Uh, another women's baseball league uh, in the same era that played only in the Chicago area. So it's funny that it was called the National Girls Baseball League. Uh, It formed in 1944, a year after the All-American Girls, and lasted 11 seasons, which was well past World War II, which is interesting because World War II is what gave women a chance to get into pro baseball because so many of the men were off fighting the war. Um, We got a wonderful clip of a 1947 newsreel featuring the National Girls Uh, playing. This is from filmmaker Adam Chu, who's making a documentary about the league. So let's take a look. Here's a new career for women, professional baseball. It's the Bluebirds and the Bloomer Girls. These professional women baseball, not softball players, look like secretaries or stenographers or just good-looking, wholesome girls. Women's baseball is big business and getting bigger and bigger all the time. Although these girls are thoroughly feminine, they play aggressive baseball and get hurt, too. Like Bloomer Girls strikeout queen Wilda Mae Turner with a twisted ankle. Lonnie Stark and Kay Rohrer are tonight's Bluebird Battery. One of the league's standout pitchers, Lonnie's got a fast-breaking curve and a back-breaking slow ball. Kay Rohrer switched her evening gowns for, well, I guess you'd call it a chest protector and a catcher's mask. Tonight's game is going to be a pitcher's battle between a blonde and a brunette. The first pitch, and it's a wallop to shortstop who throws her out at first. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. My goodness, another week already? Well, all right, let's go. Let's, here's the windup, here's the pitch, and greetings, friends. It's Tim Hanlon, your pal, here in podcast land, and it, of course, it's it, Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, I can't even say it. That's how excited I am. Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, that's our little genre that we've carved out for ourselves over the last, I don't know, four years or so of this uh, this nonsense. And uh, yeah, you name it, if it's teams, leagues, uh, events, uh, various forms of defunctness or relocations or just out and out abandonment uh, come and gone, uh, we kind of obsess about that kind of stuff. And uh, we uh, welcome you to the proceedings. If you're new, shame on you. Where have you been? Uh, So many episodes for you to catch up on. Uh, But uh, if you're a return visitor, well, we, of course, appreciate that. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, please, indeed. Uh, tell your friends and uh, they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. And we'll keep growing our little uh, defunct and uh, forgotten sports nation here. And this week we uh, turn our sights back to baseball, but uh, maybe it's softball. We're not quite sure. We kind of get into some of the uh, the elements of this as we uh, renew our, uh, uh, our energies around uh, the women's version of the game or games, if you will. Uh, as uh, most of you probably remember, we've had a couple of conversations around the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. I think that's the uh, the entity that uh, most people, if they uh, have any semblance of baseball history and, and recognize uh, women's participation 
uh, in the sport over the uh, over time. Uh, we'll certainly probably know that one, that league, that effort, probably because of the 1990s uh, film, uh, A League of Their Own, Tom Hanks and Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell and, and Gina Davis, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, lots of great stories still to be uh, unearthed and remembered and discovered, rediscovered uh, around the AAGBPL. Um, but what is probably lesser known, and I frankly was completely uh, new to me, uh, was that there at the same time, literally around the same time, uh, almost uh, exactly at the same time, eh, with an exception of a year or two, there was actually another separate, distinct uh, women's professional baseball league. It was called the National Girls Baseball League. And um, despite its name, it was actually headquartered and, and uh, featured teams solely within the Chicago metropolitan area. Uh, it was founded in 1944. It, uh, it, it uh, came to its demise about 10 years later. Um, but it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And our guest this week, Adam Chu, who was putting a, a documentary together about uh, this league, the NGBL, National Girls Baseball League. Um, it was a professional women's baseball league. Now, again, we'll get into some of the specifics of it, but they played it with a 12-inch sized ball, which is very much the softball uh, realm we know today. But uh, the name baseball and softball were kind of, you know, liberally confused, shall we say, by both of these leagues. But this one uh, in particular headquartered and centered in and around Chicago, just had some fascinating uh, topics and, and uh, pieces of trivia and, and uh, events at attached to it. For example, the chief executive officer for a period of time of this league was a guy named Red Grange. Yeah, the guy who, you know, essentially was known as the galloping ghost, uh, you know, star halfback for in football for the University of Illinois back in the day, the Chicago Bears uh, I think he even signed for a cup of coffee with the New York Yankees. I mean, that's how successful and popular and, and uh, uh, pronounced uh, the uh, sports skills of Red Grange was. It was co-founded by a guy we've talked about previously, too, in our episode number 140 with Joe Ziemba, the Chicago football Cardinals, the founder of that organization and the co-founder of this National Girls Baseball League, Charles Bidwell. Yeah, he with uh, the, of Chicago Cardinals fame, uh, he along with uh, Emery uh, Parici, uh, and were essentially credited as the sort of co-founders, uh, of this national girls baseball league, a politician by the name of Ed Kolsky was sort of also part of that mixture. Um, all of those names and, and dozens and dozens of top talented, uh, female baseball slash softball players were part of this. And, and as we'll talk about our conversation with, with Adam in a few minutes, uh, there was absolutely uh, some trading, shall we say, of talent between these two uh, entities, especially, let's say, the Chicago Colleens of the uh, All-America Girls League. Um, and there was even a, a truce, if you will, between the two leagues after uh, the first year of their overlap. I think uh, uh, the AAGBPL uh, had a year ahead of the NGBL, National Girls Baseball League. Uh, I'm not going to sort of get you with acronyms, but uh, the National Girls Baseball League was uh, high quality uh, and in some cases even better quality, depending on the historians uh, that you talk to. Um, there were uh, usually around six teams uh, in the Chicago area. And they played in, in, in stadiums all across the city. Forest Park 
uh, being one of them. Uh, they certainly had some um, uh, exhibitions, a couple of games at uh, Soldier Field, um, but they played in, in dedicated parks all around the city. And uh, it's fascinating to sort of understand uh, and recognize just how popular not only uh, the, the, the game was generally, but the fact that they had two leagues going on simultaneously. And Chicago was this hotbed, this hub. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Chicago really was a National Girls Baseball League city uh, when the All-America Girls League was out there. Um, it, the Chicago Colleens didn't even last very long here in Chicago. Um, that's how powerful this league was within the environs of Chicago. Yeah, the All-America League, very much a Midwestern uh, regional kind of approach, despite it also being sort of pitched as sort of a national uh, kind of a, a foundation, national league. Uh, but when it came to the uh, the city of Chicago, the AAGPPL didn't really uh, have any traction because of what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Adam Chu, the National Girls Baseball League. And yeah, if you remember uh, the teams by the names of the Bloomer Girls uh, and uh, the uh, Rockola Music Maids, how about the Brock's Candy Kids? K, K with a candy, K, K, candy with a spell with a K. Brock's Candy Kids. Uh, Parici was the sponsor of the Bloomer Girls, the Chicago Queens, the Chicago uh, Bluebirds, um, et cetera, and et cetera. Uh, as, if you're from Chicago, you have relatives from Chicago, or you're just a, a fascinated with uh, another sort of nook and cranny of baseball slash softball's history. And then again, softball, right? Uh, hugely popular and becoming more of a thing now as uh, the NCAA and the women's uh, uh, a collegiate game now expands to 64 teams for their annual tournament. And you've got now two professional uh, endeavors in National Pro Fast Pitch, the uh, Women's uh, Pro Softball League has been around for a decade or so, and the uh, relatively new Athletes United, uh, the entity that uh, is uh, uh, bringing uh, a very interesting professional format to uh, various women's sports, softball being one of them. And all of that is, uh, frankly, uh, directly lineaged and traceable to uh, our conversation this week uh, around one of the two leagues, the probably lesser known uh, softball slash baseball league for the women uh, back in the 40s, known as the National Girls baseball league uh our conversation with adam chu coming up in a moment it's really uh hugely revealing and uh just a, a slice of baseball and women's sports history um previously unknown to me and uh and, and endlessly fascinating you'll find it uh the same as well before we get there of course we've got to go over our little speed bump right uh we've got to pay some bills keep the lights on and uh it's time for air conditioning now that summer is here and we need that here in our little studio. Uh, so help us with those uh, electricity bills as our AC starts to ramp up, will you? By making a purchase from a trio of fine sites. They're all related. Uh, it's our pal Kevin Schultz uh, in uh, Florence, Kentucky. It's, I think, a southern uh, suburb of uh, the Cincinnati metropolitan area. Uh, three great sites for awesome T-shirts, really kind of uh, featuring all kinds of teams and logos, uh, really impossible to find just about anywhere else. Uh, and they are in three sports, basketball, hockey, and in soccer. Here are the sites that you got to check out. 
It's vintageicehockey.com. That's the hockey one. Reboundvintagehoops.com. That's the basketball one. And extratimevintage.com. That's the soccer one. Yes, you get the word vintage in all of those. Uh, And uh, what are you going to get at each of those sites? You're going to find great shirts as well as other apparel uh, featuring a ton of great logos, most of them unique to these sites. Like, for example, the Columbus Chill uh, on VintageIceHockey.com. Those are not easy to find uh, T-shirts featuring the great Columbus Chill, a previous episode of ours, by the way. East Coast Hockey League, et cetera. Lots of minor league stuff. Uh, we, we've had a number of conversations about the old Continental Basketball Association and its predecessor, the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Uh, if you remember basketball teams and stories from those, uh, those clubs in places like Altoona, Pennsylvania, for example, reboundvintagehoops.com has got you covered. That's the place to find all of those and then some. And look, if you're interested in soccer, we, you know, we, we've waxed nostalgic about a lot of American soccer league teams, right? The sort of second, uh, very much forgotten pro league, uh, you know, that uh, was around for decades and trying to professionalize itself even more in the 70s and 80s to kind of to take a run at the old NASL. Well, you're going to find a whole bunch of things like the Sacramento Gold, uh, yeah, the Columbus Magic, uh, which we just talked about in a previous episode just a week or two ago. Uh, extratimevintage.com is the place for those soccer-oriented shirts and garb. And in each of those sites, extratimevintage.com, reboundvintagehoops.com, and vintageicehockey.com, you can use the promo code GOODSEATS to enjoy, courtesy of us and our pal Kevin Schultz, 10% off all of your purchases. So what are you waiting for? Check them all out. Bookmark them. There's new stuff uh, being added there all the time. Check out the shirts, check out the logos, and you're going to enjoy, and I'm sure be interested in at least one of those. And again, here are the sites one more time. VintageIceHockey.com for hockey. ReboundVintageHoops.com for for basketball or hoops, yeah. And for soccer, ExtraTimeVintage.com. Again, for all those sites, good seats. That's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases. Thanks, Kevin, and uh, thank you for trying them out. And of course, thank you uh, as well for continuing to listen. Here's our great conversation coming up right now, coming at you. Here's Adam Chu and me talking about the oft-forgotten National Girls Baseball League. Here it is. Please enjoy. Explain to me uh, where your interest uh, sort of came about for this admittedly sort of forgotten and overlooked league, which is just as important, I think, in the history of women's sports and and women in baseball slash softball in this country. Um, I'm just curious as to how you came into uh, interest and intrigue. Is is it uh, something professional or did you have a personal relationship with a a relative or or how did you stumble across the story generally in the first place? Well, I was always a huge baseball fan and um, I always love stories about um, these outlaw leagues that were created, you know, throughout baseball's history that kind of went against the convention of the mainstream leagues. Um, I could tell you stories of like, you know, the Carolina League, the outlaw league that used to exist back in the early 1900s. They used to raid Major League Baseball teams. Um, I could tell you about the Federal League. You know, it's just that part of baseball, these uh, 
outsider leagues that really interest me because, you know, those are the stories that I feel don't get a lot of press just because information is hard to come by. Um, and because um, ma- the Major League Baseball story has kind of, because I want to say they won the war, you know, they are allowed to write the history the way they see fit. You know, So a lot of these stories tend to get swept under the rug or completely forgotten. And when I stumbled upon a Chicago Encyclopedia article about the All-American Girls Baseball League, there was one sentence in there that mentioned the National Girls Baseball League. And once I saw the, you know, the National Girls Baseball League, I was totally hooked. I started doing the research. I started coming across newspaper articles. I, then I began um, collecting memorabilia for the league. And really, it went hand in hand with what I was studying at college at the time, which was documentary filmmaking. So um, the one thing that I noticed you know, was there was very little written down about this league. And that, you know, fueled my passion even further. And when I was uh, researching even more about this league, you know, I would come across like articles about certain players and stuff that they had done, you know, previous to softball or while during their careers in softball. And these were really remarkable ladies. Some of them were able to get in the Hall of Fames that were created for other sports like bowling hall of fames, um, basketball hall of fames, like individual state hall of fames for basketball. And so I felt that, you know, these players accomplishments needed to be told and they needed to be further elaborated on than what I could find on the internet, which were like certain, maybe one or two paragraph blurbs about these players, but nothing really concrete about their stories. So what was it about this particular league that kind of stood out? Because I I think most people, you know, uh, who would consider themselves as passing fans of sports generally, right? You know, pop culture certainly know or think they know the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, right? Which is obviously uh, made uh, into sort of a whole otherworldly thing with a league of their own, that movie from the from the 1990s that, you know, kind of uh, glamorized all of it, right? And I think most people kind of, if they have any knowledge that there were female, quote-unquote, baseball players, and we'll get into the distinction a little while, I'm sure it's part of the story, um, they think that that was kind of it. Oh, sure, I think I remember, you know, or I certainly saw the movie. Um, But this, and this is actually a revelation to me too, right, is, was something around the same time and concentrated in, the city and the the environs of Chicago, which uh, it sounds to me like has just as much a part to play in the telling of the story as it does uh, this league in and of itself. This kind of speaks to Chicago almost as a, uh, you know, a center of the sport uh, at the same time as this sort of uh, uh, in-war and then post-war uh, league for women to play professional sport. Yeah. And really, when you look into the history of the NGBL, you can't help but talk about the history of softball as well. Um, There's some dispute about when or where softball was created. Um, Chicago usually is what people believe is where the sport was concentrated and created, thanks to a gentleman by the name of George Hancock, who invented it in 1887. Um, But in 1895, there was a sport very similar to fast pitch softball you see today that was played in Minnesota that was created by Lewis Rober. 
So they tend to claim that, you know, they are the center of and the creation of softball's history. But for all intents and purposes, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the Chicago side of things. And I, I believe the sport of softball was invented in Chicago. And when you look at the history, they were pioneers in not only fostering softball, which at the time was known as indoor baseball. So real quick, um, indoor baseball was a sport that was played usually in a gymnasium. It looked very similar to baseball, but they played with a larger ball, uh, 16-inch diameter, which is very similar to um, 16-inch softball, which is played currently in Chicago at the moment and is one of the few cities where that sport is still played. Yeah, and, and quick parenthetical, because I think it's important to our non-Chicago listeners, uh, maybe just a quick detour into that, because uh, that's played with no gloves, and it's a different size ball, and people from outside this area have no clue, nor are they do they have any semblance of what this is all about. Yes. So, yeah, so like you said, it's played without gloves. Um, the ball is usually 16 inches in diameter, which is – it's they almost call it like a cantaloupe or a melon ball. Um, and really what it is, is it's a sport played uh, usually in rec leagues or just around the playground here in the Chicagoland area. And I think there is a national tournament that was created like in the 1970s that really took the sport kind of beyond the borders because now there are teams from all over the country that come in and they play in this tournament. But um, the sport that George Hancock created was called indoor baseball. And the, the story goes that they were with him and a few other members of this uh, boat club known as the Farragut Boat Club were playing or they were awaiting the scores of the Harvard Yale um, football game during Thanksgiving Day in 1887. And they were just horsing around when one of the members threw like a boxing glove at another member. And he managed to see it coming, picked up like a broomstick and hit it back at the gentleman that threw it at him. So George Hancock had seen this. And that's when he started to organize the people on the gymnasium so they could play a game similar to baseball with this boxing glove and this broomstick um, on the gymnasium floor. And then after that, you know, he he wrote a bunch of rules for the game. And he ended up um, publishing them, and it kind of started the ball rolling for indoor baseball to become a sport, mostly in the Chicagoland area. Now, um, at the time, you know, there weren't really very many indoor sports. I think, I, I'm not sure when basketball was invented, but um, I believe it was just a little bit after this. So, when indoor baseball started gaining momentum, a lot of athletes looked at it as a way to stay in shape, you know, during the winter months. So indoor baseball kind of took a hold in the Chicagoland area and eventually branched out from there. And in 1892, I found an article mentioning how some people had adapted the game for outdoor use. And they began to play the game outdoors with a, uh, a ball that was a little bit harder than the one that was used in indoor baseball. So in indoor baseball, the ball tended to be a little bit soft just because, you know, you don't want to hit a hard ball indoors because the potential for injury was, you know, enormous. And so they began to adapt the game outdoors with this harder ball and a harder baseball bat than used indoors. 
And eventually the game started to flourish between, you know, being an indoor sport and an outdoor sport. Now that in 1895, though, that's when Lewis Rober created his version of softball. But I, I, I still honestly believe, though, that, you know, this 1887 year was the year that the sport of softball was created because George Hancock's version kind of influenced later how the game would be played. Yeah, that, that's interesting because that, that that's a tributary to the sport of, of quote unquote softball uh, in and of itself, right? And I, I'm I'm sure we could do a whole other episode sort of devoted to sort of uh, the the quote unquote split or the divergence or the parallelism, I guess, of these two sort of different versions. Obviously, the the latter version you describe or hint at obviously becomes the more shall we call it universal one. But I guess in Chicago, right, you probably had the best of both worlds because. Uh, both versions were, I'm sure, flourishing um, and, and had their own sort of uh, uh, pluses and minuses. Uh, may, maybe at this, use that sort of as the, as the setup for um, maybe why the sport generally uh, uh, became uh, quite a sensation, certainly the outdoor version. I mean, we could talk about sort of the indoor uh, continuation of that, too, because I think it's really important to kind of set that up as a backdrop for what ultimately became a large talent pool in the forties when both of these professional leagues started to come about um, women and the game of softball were quite the thing in the first part of the latter century, right? I mean, this was a, a huge sport, uh, certainly played on an amateur level um, and not just uniquely to women either, by the way. Yes. Yes. And really, if you look at the history as well of softball, um, the first women's softball team was formed in 1895 at uh, high school here in Chicago, known as West Division High School. And they didn't get a formal league, though, for women until 1901. But um, almost from the beginning, the women were allowed to play this game. I'm, I'm not sure exactly about the history of women and baseball, but I've heard that a lot of people believe that the sport of baseball was a too rough for women. So um, when this you know came about, I mean, women were encouraged to play almost from the beginning. And really, you know, after 1901, there was no other uh, league at the scholastic level, but women were allowed to play intramural and playground versions of the game all the way up until the 1930s. And really, I mean, the the fact that they were included at the beginning of the sport sort of tells you why it was so popular once, you know, the entire um, rule set was adopted for softball in 1933 that kind of codified all these different versions that had been played all across the United States. It brought together all these uh, organizations that were playing these various versions of softball and that's when the Amateur Softball Association was created and it kind of fostered, you know, the participation of both men and women in the sport all the way leading up to to the present, actually. So maybe set the table now for uh, the professionalism and women uh, mm -hmm. playing this game. Call it softball. Call it baseball. Uh, we'll talk about sort of the the the, the differences, so to speak, uh, from, from its label in a minute. But. Um, maybe set the table a little bit. Obviously, the, the early 40s was when the war was raging here in the United States. There were a lot of players in baseball 
being drafted or volunteering at football. We know certainly in some previous episodes, the NFL was, you know, uh, not unaffected either. Um, but entrepreneurial, interestingly, men with this idea of sort of keeping sports alive a bit, using women to play a game somewhat familiar uh, and a distraction from the war effort and, and other stuff. Um, an interesting set of circumstances. Yes. And it, it's, it really starts um, in the early 40s, the late 30s, why professionalism eventually became the norm. Uh, softball was really um, sort of, uh, I want to say not well organized in a lot of cities. So, you know, they, because the ladies were amateurs, they weren't given contracts. So there was a lot of talent rating. And I think in around the early 1940s, 1941 and 1942, some issues about getting paid started coming into the norm. And when William Wrigley, who had ballparks in uh, Los Angeles and Chicago, and of course the Cubs and the Los Angeles Angels in which he owned, there were strong softball leagues in both cities. So they were using his ballparks. And I'm pretty sure once he had this belief in his head that, you know, there weren't going to be men around to play major league baseball or minor league baseball. He looked at this as sort of as an alternative, simply because these ladies were drawing crowds in his ballparks in these cities. And then uh, you're saying they already established, and I'm sure you're going to hint at this too, with, with, um, with, with the, the quote unquote other league, there was already in the Chicago area, quite a, an attraction to this play already, albeit at an amateur level. Yes. Wow. And the league was known as the Metropolitan Girls Softball League. And uh, they had been around since the 1930s and they were thriving. I think they played in maybe like four ballparks and they were drawing numbers that were better than the men's softball teams and oftentimes better than the White Sox and sometimes the Cubs. So uh, when these ladies were given the opportunity to play professional baseball, when William Wrigley wanted to start this professional league in 43, I mean, they jumped at the chance. Uh, they weren't getting any of the profits from, you know, the attendance that was at their games. I mean, they they were amateur. Some of them might have gotten a job out of the the deal that they had with the amateur team owners, or they might have been paid under the table. But a lot of times these ladies weren't paid. So to play this game professionally and to get paid was something that really attracted a lot of them. And they, once they signed with the All-American Girls Baseball League, I mean, those amateur leagues teams were decimated. Interesting. It speaks to the fact that there were so many talented women playing the game, but it also speaks to the fact that uh, there's a, a monetary incentive to uh, at least foundationally uh, create the idea that maybe there could be a quote unquote business around this for people like uh, Wrigley and uh, his ilk for, for this, this league. Yeah. And that's, that's funny too, because um, he didn't talk to anyone within the softball community about, you know, starting this league. They were very much independent. So he had his own people create the league. So once that began, a lot of the previous owners of amateur teams decided that it was time for them to start paying their players because they didn't like the fact that, you know, now all their great players were playing in this league that had nothing to do with them, didn't even bother or give them the courtesy to talk to them about, you know, starting up this league. 
So, you know, they were a little mad. So I think they relished in that opportunity to try to get back at William Wrigley for that. Um, and if you look at uh, one man in particular, his name is Emery Parishy. Oh, yeah. He, he was one of the founders of the league. Yeah, so he was one of the founders of the league, along with Charlie Bidwell and a gentleman named Ed Kolsky. They had all been sponsoring amateur softball teams in the Chicagoland area for years. I think Emory started in 1937 and Charlie Bidwell around that same time as well. Ed Kolsky, he was a former baseball player who also played softball. And he sort of made it a family affair, starting a, a team that starred his sister, who was one of the best softball players in, or would become one of the best softball players in the NGBL. So these three men had the idea to create this league in Chicago. And it's funny because the league, they began talks in May and were formed like within a week later and then began playing in June. So that's how spontaneous, you know, the National Girls Baseball League was. But these men had been involved in softball for a long time, so they really had infrastructure in place already. And I think when they announced that they were going to um, – begin to pay the players or turn professional. A few other owners got on board, but there was also a little bit of a mixed reaction from some other people within the softball community who didn't like the idea of another professional league taking more talent and thus decimating the amateur leagues even further. And the amateur league managed to last like up until the early 1950s but really, it was almost a domino effect. It was one by one. They started going under. And eventually, you know, outside of the West Coast, there were very few amateur leagues left on the East because of these two professional leagues that had started. And the, and the funny thing, too, is that they weren't the only professional league. There was also another one in the New York metropolitan area that started around 1946. It started off as the American uh, Girls Softball League. And then they, like the Amer All-American League, changed from playing softball to playing a modified version of baseball. And they also took a lot of talent. So, okay, it would seem to me, to the outsider, that uh, Parachi and, and Bidwell would have been the guys to go to if I were Wrigley trying to set up a league, right? Because these yes. are the guys who had essentially been the patrons of women's softball, at least on the amateur level, for years, at least in Chicago, right? Yes. And the the fact that he didn't, I think that's why there was so much animosity in the softball community at him, because he didn't go to these these people who already have the know-how and already have sort of the infrastructure in place on how to start a professional league. And if you ever notice throughout the history of the All-American Girls Baseball League, they tried to put a team in Chicago for one year in 1948. It was called the Chicago Colleens, and that team didn't do well, and that was the only year they played. And it was because of the National Girls Baseball League. They were so dominant in the Chicagoland area. I mean, you could watch some of the top players in all of softball play in this league. And in my opinion, I, I believe the, the better soft or the better game was being played in the National Girls Baseball League because of the caliber of player that they had. And so the Colleens were never able to get a foothold. And I think the All-American League throughout their history tried to do things to try to uh, – kind of end that dominance. I mean, they created like a four-team minor league that was solely based in Chicago that had teams playing two in Chicago and then two in Blue Island, Illinois. But they were never to crack 
you know, the foothold that or the National Girls Baseball he had in Chicago. So that's really interesting. I, that is lost, I think, in a lot of people that Chicago was not really part of the All-American Girls circuit for this very reason. It's almost like there's like a, a fortress around the Chicago metro area when it comes to the game and, and the, the evolution of both of these leagues. Yes. And then it's funny, too, though, because Chicago or the National Girls Baseball League wasn't able to get any sort of momentum outside of the city of Chicago as well. I think in 48, they tried to expand beyond the Chicagoland area and it was unsuccessful. They were never able to get more than six teams in the league. Uh, They stayed um, they started off with five teams in 44 and then six teams from 45 all the way to 52 but they were never able to get any more than that. And I think it's because they also wanted to keep the monopoly on Chicago. So they didn't have the foresight, though, to try to expand outside of the um, the city. And that's kind of what led to their downfall, because Chicago wasn't able to support, you know, this league further than uh, the mid 1950s. Because there were too many entertainment options, especially with Major League Baseball now being a a regular thing on television, fans didn't have to leave their home. They could watch baseball and a a super high quality of baseball at home, which led to the attendance downfall for the National Girls Baseball League. All right. So um, before we get into the baseball versus softball description thing because i think it's important to kind of distill it can we talk a little bit about the three guys behind the national uh league uh you mentioned two of them well you actually mentioned all three of them emery Prachi, right um uh is obviously a big part of it charlie bidwell most uh uh listeners to this show will remember our conversation with joe ziemba talking about the chicago cardinals episode number 140 of which Mm -hmm. bidwell was a major part because he was owner of that team and and this ed kalski guy uh he's a politician right so maybe a little bit about the three of them and sort of maybe how this came together because i gotta think the all-american league pushed them to action maybe they were even considering professionalizing what they had yes and and emory parishi he is probably one of the the big catalysts for this league um he was all for paying the ladies for years and he had in fact when he was only sponsoring a softball team in Forest Park, Illinois, he built them a ballpark, which was known as one of the nicest ballparks at the time that softball had played in. And it was located at the corner of Harlem and Harrison in Forest Park. And it was a jewel. It had a baseball museum that was attached to it. And now this baseball museum was something that Emory had created in the 1930s. And it was the first baseball museum to ever exist in the United States, and it predated the National Baseball Hall of Fame, I believe, by five years. So I think in 1934 is when he created this baseball museum. And so he made Parisi Memorial Stadium sort of the center of softball in the Chicagoland area. And I know when the, the Amateur Softball Association used to run the world's amateur softball championships, that was the only ballpark outside of the Chicago that hosted games during the tournament. And eventually became known as uh, Girls Softball Town USA because there were so many women's games, amateur, uh, professional um, exhibition games being played at this ballpark by women that they had no other choice but to call it that. 
And so Emery, he was a roofing company owner. Um, and he was really a huge fan of the women. Whenever I do an interview with any of the ladies that played in the league who also played for Emery, they talk about him as being like one of the most generous people um, on the planet because he was so accommodating to the women. He was always giving them bonuses. I believe he um, was one of the major promoters behind the National Girls Baseball League. So really he was the one putting out publications about the league he was the one who was paying the players sometimes the highest salaries. One of the players that he had on the team was her name was Wilda May Turner. He signed her in 1946 to a contract of $5,500 for 14 weeks that the league played during the summer months. And at the time that was the highest paid female athlete in the United States. And so um, he was really the the probably the one that a lot of women will remember because when the league ended he also was the one that tried to keep it going for a few more years he purchased all the teams in 1953 and tried to continue the league even after they had shut down officially in 1954 he only had two teams left by 1955 but he wanted to keep playing and he was willing to fund that uh, out of his own pocket just to keep them playing. And then you go to Charlie Bidwell. Bidwell, he was a huge softball booster in the 1930s. So he sponsored teams on the West suburbs. And he wanted to expand his sporting empire. And like you said, he was the owner of the Chicago Cardinals. And he also owned, owned a few racetracks here in the Chicagoland area. So he got his right-hand man, Arch Wolf, involved and they were able to um, get the ball rolling when the National Girls Baseball League was brought up about, you know, turning professional and being created. And he was one of the major financiers in the league. So a lot of the other teams needed sponsors in order to survive. But because of his resources, he didn't need a sponsor. So the team that he owned, the Chicago Bluebirds, never had a sponsor attached to their name. But I think the the part where he, I think he died in 1940, I want to say 47 or 48. I can't remember off the top of my head, but when he died, sort of that empire started crumbling. And um, you could see the Bluebirds were one of the top teams in the league, but they kind of regressed after that. They still had a lot of the top players, but they weren't able to continue to play at a high level simply because they weren't. Uh, there there wasn't anyone like Charlie Bidwell devoted to the team. And then Ed Kolsky, um, I've spoken with members of his family and, you know, they, they really aren't privy to, you know, a lot of the stuff that he was involved in, but they would describe um, him to me like he was a, almost like a mafioso boss, which is kind of hilarious because, um, you know, if you look at the pictures of him, he he sort of does fit that mold. And then he was very old school and he was involved in softball almost early on simply because his sister was such a great talent in the game. And so he kind of wanted to, I don't know if he wanted to market her or he saw the ability to make money with her. So he would create these amateur softball teams for his sister to play on. 
And they were some of the most successful teams in the Metropolitan Softball League. And to jump at the chance, you know, to recoup some of the losses that he had gotten when Wrigley created his pro league. And not only to uh, promote his sister, but also to promote a lot of the businesses that he would be involved in. He jumped at the chance to join the National Girls Baseball League. And his team was probably the best team in the league throughout its entire existence. And really, he wasn't a politician until after his days um, playing softball. But the like I said before, he was able to bring people to the table that wouldn't have normally gotten into softball. A lot of the sponsors that he um, got to be the sponsors of his team, they were eventually big contributors to his political aspirations. And so I think Ed Kolsky was just a, a very smooth operator and a very clever person. And he, like I said, he didn't have the resources of the other owners, but he was an amazing talker. He was very, I want to say very charismatic. Uh, for the longest time, he was the one that they would send to deal with the public if there was anything that needed to be said about the league in general. Interesting. Very interesting. And, and um, I, this, the, it's just, I'm just fascinated by the fact that these sort of two leagues were going on simultaneously and how Chicago was, you know, sort of uh, uh, unique and inured to the all American thing. And, and, but you can, you can hear why, right? I mean, these are three local guys, right. Who were involved mm-hmm. in the sport, right. Prior to the professionalism thing. Let me, let's ask you the question now. Baseball versus softball, like the differences between the two leagues. What about that? And what about these two descriptors? Because was it baseball? I think the All-American League had a bit more, quote unquote, baseball uh, uh, deferences to it than, say, the National League did. Yes. And the All-American League was really the one that made the sport look a lot similar to baseball because when they came in softball was still played 10 people aside on the field. So that meant there was your entire infield, the shortstop, but they also had a, what they called a short infielder who played between the first baseman and the second baseman. So when the all American league came in, they made it nine and that's where the sport kind of focused after that. It, It suddenly became nine to a side as opposed to the 10 that, had previously been around. And then the All-American League, the first year they played softball, but then throughout their history, you see every year they changed the rules and it started resembling more baseball towards the end. Um, The National Girls Baseball League, they were softball from the beginning to the end. So that meant, you know, the 12-inch underhand as opposed to the All-American League, which started with the 12-inch softball and then eventually got to the 9 inch baseball and they play, they started out with the underhand fast pitch but eventually the all-american league evolved to having the overhand pitch and then um the differences between softball softball like i said before you know in the 1920s and the 1930s a lot of people were playing and stealing other leagues It wasn't until 1933 when the Amateur Softball Association started that they were able to codify the rules to make it an actual organized sport. And they were playing with the Chicago rules. So 
that's another reason why, you know, you could honestly argue that Chicago was the center of softball because of its influence on the game. And then uh, the All-American League, um, you know, what's really funny is that there were players that went from both leagues back and forth. A lot of the players, though, that who had grown up as softball players didn't like the fact that the leagues was changing the rules uh, year in and year out. So a lot of them couldn't adapt to the overhand pitch. A lot of them felt that their arms were going to give out if they kept adding feet to the baselines. And so the National Girls Football League, who did not change the rules at all during their time, was a better option for them. That's that's interesting. So why, um, yeah. So why then, ahead. yeah? Why did the National League then still keep the name baseball then? Well, the first two years that they played, forty four and forty five, they were called the National Girls Softball League. But for some reason, I think there was this distinction that softball was being played with a soft ball. So I they wanted to really kind of show the public that know that they this was sort of a variation of baseball. So they're going to call it girls version of baseball. Now, if, if you look at basketball, like basketball, they had a variation of uh, basketball that was played only by women, I think, in the Midwest called six on six basketball. So I think this was kind of a naming it girls baseball was kind of a way to differentiate themselves from being played uh, or regular baseball being played and against the name softball to kind of show the fans that this is a version of baseball being played that's only played by women, sort of like six on six basketball that um, wouldn't confuse the, the fans. So when fans come to the ballpark, they think, Oh, you know, this looks like baseball. So this is the girls' version of baseball. It's really interesting how the words softball and baseball were used interchangeably for both of these leagues and this sort of period of time. Okay. So um, the National Girls Baseball League was actually called the National Girls Softball League. Their first two years of their existence in 44 and 45. I believe that they changed the name from softball to baseball in 46 was based solely on the term softball being misleading, I think, to the general public. I think they felt that fans were kept away because they thought that they were going to see a game played with a much softer ball than a baseball. So the leagues thought the term baseball might have been more promotable, and it was sort of to differentiate themselves um, from the other leagues that were in the area, solely the Metropolitan League and other softball leagues that played in the West suburbs. And I also believe they were trying to sell the public on this term of girls baseball being a variation of the sport of baseball. So the fans were able to, you know, come with this frame of reference that this is baseball that they're watching, except it's just a, a much, uh, I don't want to say lesser, but I think that's their mindset, a much lesser version of the game of baseball. So they termed it girls baseball instead of softball. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure it was pejorative per se, but, you know, in retrospect, it looks like it could be a little sexist perceived, but but maybe not. Maybe it was just simply a way to 
create a relatable product. And let's be let's let's remind the audience that this was professional product, really, against yes. two leagues, right? Yes. And the All American Girls, I mean, they weren't known as the All American Girls Baseball League throughout their entire existence. I think they had like maybe four or five name changes to their history as well. They started out as the All American Girls Softball League, so you know they were also trying to bring in that baseball audience. And so, you know, that's when fans were able to see the hybrid version of baseball and softball that they were able to see at the All-American League parks. Okay, well, let's get into some of these teams in a second. But but before we do that, let's talk about the very famous person that was sort of corralled to be, what, commissioner or CEO or something to draw attention. So that was Red Grange, and he was uh, the commissioner – in 1947 and the funny thing is the league had been following the all-american girls baseball league's hiring of max carey who was a former baseball star as their league commissioner so i think they wanted to counteract that announcement with their own announcement that they had this big star this big male star from another sport as their commissioner and really you know harold Fred Grange, he didn't have any power whatsoever. The league was still being run by um, Bidwell, Kolsky, and Parishy. So he was just merely there as a, a public face. But I don't think he did anything other than show up at league meetings and show up for photo ops. And the connection, though, with him was through Charlie Bidwell. And I think Bidwell really was the one that convinced Red Grange that this is something that he should have done. So what's Grange do? He's kind of like just the figurehead and kind of goes out and sort of cuts ribbons and shakes hands and takes pictures and stuff? Yeah, pretty much. He he didn't really have any power. The suspensions were all through Ed Ed Kolsky because Ed Kolsky was the president at the time. And so I think Red... Aside of a few photo ops, I mean, I have no records of him being involved whatsoever with the day-to-day operation of the league. So his title as commissioner was more or less for the public sake, I guess. Well, and obviously legendary, certainly in the Midwest, Illinois and and Chicago proper for sure. Right. So not not a bad guy to sort of have, you know, drawing some attention. Right. But it was sort of an odd choice, though. I mean, he was a football person. Although uh, at the time, um, he, he'd been trying other things. I think I've read articles about him like trying to become like a, some sort of boxing promoter. But Red Grange really, I mean, it was an odd choice because they did have former major leaguers involved in the National Girls Baseball League. So, I mean, they could have hired any one of those people, you know, and maybe given them a little more of a, of a role in the day-to-day operations as opposed to Red Grange because I don't, I don't think, you know, it might have brought some eyes to the product, but I really don't think it did much for the league overall. I sense that a uh, gentleman by the name of C.C. Pyle was sort of part of the mixture too. That was his agent uh, for a long time. And uh, we've even done an episode on C.C. Pyle's uh, amazing foot races that he ran, a cross-country <laughs> foot races, right? And and, and Grange was kind of sort of part of the promotional around that, too. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is sort of a, I wouldn't call it hucksterism, but it's certainly a lot of um, promotion, shall we say. Sports promotion was certainly in its infancy and uh, maybe not to be too surprising when you look back at it. Yeah. And I think, too, 
the National Girls Baseball League began showing games on television. So in 1947, I believe that was the first year that they started showing uh, games on television. And I really honestly believe that Red Grange was hired for that very reason. They wanted a few more eyeballs on the product. So, you know, here's Red Grange's star as your commissioner, and maybe you can get a a soundbite out of him every now and again on on the TV. But really, I think that's why um, his hiring was so instrumental. Were you able to find any television footage or any film footage um, uh, from a broadcast or two in your your search? Unfortunately, no. Um, There was a thing called kinescoping back in the day that they used to do for television where, you know, they would place a camera in front of a TV and record what was being played on the camera. On, I'm, I'm sorry, what was being recorded on the television. But unfortunately, I don't believe anyone has saved any of those games simply because television studios would record over the new, the reels that they had simply to save money. I have managed to find, though, like uh, footage from like family members who had like maybe a camera on hand and recorded some of the games, but no, none of the professional quality games have ever been found which is unfortunate because i would have loved to have seen some of the broadcasts because i guess instead of doing the over the shoulder center field camera they used to put the camera above the field so you would see the entire field Uh, interesting yeah and and the kinescope thing right it's it's it bedeviled the television industry for decades even after that johnny carson fans will tell you that um how about some of the teams uh in particular uh, a little bit of the history of this this Bloomer Girls team because they they were kind of sort of a, a showcase I think in some respects and and they they actually weren't even a Chicago team if I have that right. Yes, uh, and the history of the Bloomer Girls team was interesting because they started out in Chicago. So in nineteen um, thirty three, there were or nineteen twenty four. I'm sorry, I totally messed that up. Let me try that again. So in nineteen twenty four. A man by the name of Hubert Baumgartner, who was a former baseball player, and his father, Ed Baumgartner, started the Bloomer Girls team. And it sort of was the first formal women's softball team, I think, in a long time in the Chicagoland area. Because, you know, there was playground teams, but there were really no teams that played, you know, exhibition games. And they were, in fact, former baseball people who started playing the game of indoor baseball and felt that there was that lack of women's teams because there were so many talented players in the Chicagoland area. So when they started the team in 1924, they were fairly successful. They were really popular and they named the team Bloomer Girls after the Bloomer Girl baseball teams that used to exist in the early half of the 1900s. And they kind of, we're playing off, you know, like Alto Weiss and uh, I forget the other name. Uh, she used to have a team called the Devil Dogs. Um, yeah, they're all well, bar- bar- barnstorming, essentially, right? Uh, yeah, so crash. they were barnstorming teams. And th- so the Bloomer Girls were kind of like the barnstorming women's team in the Chicagoland area. But it wasn't until 19, I believe, 1933. They went to a gentleman by the name of Matt Rupert, who was a real famous softball player here in the Chicagoland area, who had his own softball association. Now, at the time, 
individual players would create their own softball associations as sort of a showcase for not only them, but also if there was disagreements between them and the national association. So Matt Rupert began sponsoring the team. And I think that really elevated them to another level because then they started playing games at Chicago stadium. They started playing games around the United States and they became fairly popular. So then after Matt Rupert was sponsoring the team, I think he kind of lost influence in the Chicagoland area. So um, the Bloomer Girls were really left without a sponsor. So they decided they could find a better sponsor in the West suburbs. And that's when they moved to Forest Park, Illinois. And they managed to find a sponsor called Vogels, who owned a bowling alley, which was across the street from the ballpark that they played at. So in 1935, the Vogel Bloomer Girls were formed. When Vogels was trying to ouster the Baumgartners from managing the team, well, they got rid of the Vogels as a sponsor, and that's where Emery Parishi comes in. He became the sponsor, and that's when he built the stadium for the team. And then eventually in 1942, when the Baumgartners wanted to end their association with softball and with the Bloomer Girls, rose to prominence because he really put a lot into not only the stadium, but also the team. And they became one of the top teams in the area at the time. Yeah. Very interesting. Now do, um, but did Parishi, did he also, were these teams independently owned or were they kind of centrally owned by the quote unquote league? A lot of the teams that started in 1944 were independently owned. It wasn't until later, like in 1953, when, the league started going under that's when Parishy started purchasing the other clubs in the league and kind of kept it afloat until 1955, which is kind of funny because a lot of the teams, they were really strong in the early parts of their existence. So like the first four years, but then they had a really odd way of uh, divvying up the stadiums in the league. So like one year, let's say three teams would have a home stadium, but they would be playing out of six stadiums. The next year, maybe four teams would have a home stadium and then two would be like kind of the traveling teams. So they really didn't give any of the teams any opportunities, you know, to really kind of make their own money. So a lot of the teams started running into financial problems and eventually they would get sold. The name would get changed. And it was a revolving door after that of owners with only like, uh, Parrish's team, Bidwell's team, and Kolsky's team, and to a lesser extent, the Music Maids, who eventually changed owners halfway through their existence in the National Girls Baseball League. Those four teams were kind of the more stable teams, but the other two were, they were struggling almost year in and year out after 47. And, and do I, would I would I be correct in assuming that uh, maybe some of the more marquee games and or events were uh, played at Soldier Field and Wrigley Field while the other ones were kind of just split, spread all over the metropolitan area? Well, uh, they only played maybe two games at Wrigley and I think one game at Soldier Field, which oh, is okay. an odd choice to me because that's where the World Amateur Softball Tournament was held every year that they played in Chicago. So I think from 1933 all the way to or 1934 to 1939. So... Uh, there are publications of 
the players playing at Soldier Field and a few pictures of them at Wrigley Field. But really, I, I think simply for the fact that, you know, Wrigley was owned by William Wrigley, they didn't play many games at those ballparks. Same with, uh, I don't know why they completely avoided Comiskey Park, but no games were played there. And if they played a game outside of any of the parks that they played at, you know, it was usually an exhibition game on a playground somewhere. Interesting. So, but, but it looks like these, they were still drawing crowds at these various places. Like Bidwell had a stadium down on 75th street. You had uh, uh, the Rockola stadium on the North side, North central mm-hmm. uh, 4,200 block uh, 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 the Gill stadium, lane stadium. I mean, these are all sort of, uh, I'm guessing though, not uh, gigantic facilities, but, but big enough to hold some decent crowds. Yeah, they were on average, they were like 2,500 people. Um, uh, they used to be amateur baseball stadiums that were converted to softball fields. The league was drawing well, but the stadiums, I mean, they you, you would get knocked down all the time. So I think consistently the only stadiums that they played at were Shrewbridge Field and Parachute Stadium in Forest Park. Um, the other stadiums, they were used by 16-inch softball clubs. They were used by amateur baseball teams. They were used by... Uh, I think soccer clubs as well. So, you know, they got a lot of use out of them, but I don't believe they got the best dates, which might have led to why they were never given home stadiums, a lot of the teams. So when the league started going under in the mid-1950s, you know, a lot of – you can watch, like, a lot of the photographs or the footage that I have, and you can see that there's very little people in the stands, which is kind of – crazy because if you look at photos from 47 to 1952 you see that stands are packed i mean there was almost sellouts every night and they didn't play a very harsh schedule i mean it was it was they would play games every night but i mean they because it's only seven innings they could hold multiple games at one ballpark and the fans would get their fill and 2500 people watching a doubleheader of seven innings each. I mean, that was, that was a big drawing, um, big drawing sport in Chicago, especially considering a lot of the times that, you know, this was still around wartime. So, you know, gasoline might've been scarce and people might not be able to travel, you know, from park to park or to travel, you know, long distances to be able to see these ladies play. But the fact that they were able to draw such great crowds, I mean, that's a testament to the quality of the sport or the quality of the play that was in the National Girls Baseball League. Well, maybe some for the players, too, because they were probably fresher because they didn't have to travel on buses like they did in the American All-American Girls League. Yes, yes. And the funny thing, too, about that is I think that was written in a lot of their contracts was, you know, they get paid a higher amount as long as they're able to find their own way to the ballpark. And so... When the ladies, I mean, you know, they didn't have any problem, you know, getting like four people into a car and traveling to the stadium. And the stadiums, you know, within, you know, a couple miles of each other sometimes. So they were able to, you know, have, um, like you said, they were able to be fresher. They were able to have a lot of the amenities that they wouldn't normally have at some of these ballparks. And also it was it was just a, a great neighborhood ballparks that you know they've the players eventually became part of that neighborhood so 
it was no problem. You know, if you saw one of your neighbors come down to the ballpark and watch you play, because it was, a, it was a, for the most part, a lot of the players said it was a fun time. They had fun playing and a lot of the fans had fun playing and they, they really got into the games. Um, I mean, they would throw stuff at the players that they didn't like, which is kind of harsh, you know, because, you know, that's something that's frowned upon nowadays. But I guess these were very hostile environments, though, when the visiting team would come to these ballparks and play these games. So the dynamic between these two leagues, right, was contentious, certainly at the beginning, but near the end of both of their lives around the same time, uh, it looks like they even sort of coordinated uh, an actual off-season league uh, between them. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, uh, so that was uh, the, the International, the International Girls Baseball League in Miami. Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I've read the article that Mary, Mary Fiddler, I think is her name, wrote for the SABR. And I saw that they did not mention uh, the fact that in 1947, the All-American Girls Baseball League and the National Girls Baseball League were kind of cooperating to send players down to Florida to play for sort of an independent women's softball team called the Miami Beach Kennel Club Greyhounds. Now, this team was owned by Charlie Bidwell, and he owned dog racetracks in Illinois, and he owned dog racetracks down in Florida. So what he would do was he would get some of the top players from the National Girls Baseball League and a few of the players from the All-American Girls Baseball League who were allowed to come down and work in his dog racetracks while also training and playing softball. So I think in 47, that laid the groundwork for um, Meyerhoff, the All-American Girls Baseball League, to you know, come up with the idea of maybe they should create a winter league in 48. And then Frank Darling wanting to create a winter league in 1949. So when they got to 1952 and 53, I think the reason the International Girls Baseball League was created was for the simple fact that they had to open up a new market because I think they saw the writing was on the wall in the Midwest as far as, you know, these two sports leagues existing past you know, the mid 1950s. So when they had this very ambitious plan to play all these games in Florida, they really were desperate at the time and they needed something, anything that they could do to try to keep this alive. But I think if I am correct, I'm not too keen on the international girls um, baseball league simply because you know, there was so much I could not find about the league. And my really my point of reference is that uh, SABR article about the league. So I'm not too sure why the All-American League eventually kind of, you know, moved away from it. And it was simply more or less a National Girls Baseball League run winter league. But also, too, I don't understand how between 49 and 1952-53 that there was no other winter league for these ladies. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we've had a couple of conversations that maybe skirted on the idea of some of the ladies going to play in Cuba even uh, yeah. to be fresh, right? So, But that sounds very unofficial, so to speak, versus uh, it being uh, uh, approved, if you will, by either of these leagues. Yeah, and I, I felt that it was more or less 
they were they signed the agreement not to raid each other's talents in 46, but I think they were still kind of weary of each other. You know, there was still a little animosity and hurt feelings on both sides. So, you know, they they really couldn't work together, I felt, before that because of the rule changes and because of the animosity and because of, um, you know, their fears of players playing for the other league and totally messing up the contracts that they had signed. So this International Girls Baseball League is really, it's really remarkable that it was able to get off the ground. But like I said, though, in 47, though, there, there was an attempt. And uh, for all intents and purposes, it was it was pretty, pretty successful, the the winter league team in 47. And I didn't see any player rating after that. None of the players switched sides. So I don't understand why it took them that long, you know, to create that winter league, especially since a lot of the players, they knew each other. It was only natural, you know, that that these two leagues should start working together at some point. You know, whether it be on anything. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, because it's also near the, the, the end of both of their natural lives, right? Because, I mean, you know, there are various reasons for that, right? I mean, you know, the, the 50s, yeah, the, the war sort of uh, halo or halo, if you can call it that, the effect was kind of over. Television, uh, baseball fans were watching a lot of baseball on television, and, and there was a lot of uh, boom time economically and stuff. So um, it maybe was a last-ditch effort of some sort, maybe to kind of j- j- join – or test the waters to join forces to kind of solidify, I guess, uh, what had been going on for the last number of years. But, you know, um, uh, these things come to an end, I guess. Let me, I got two more questions for you. Number one, how about some names of players that kind of stood out in your research? Um, We don't have to get too in-depth, but uh, some names that maybe uh, should be worth remembering uh, as standout players in this league. Any, Any come to mind? Yeah, uh, there's a ton, I actually. It's, but I'll, I'll give you a few. Freda Savona, she was considered the greatest player of her generation, playing in the All-American Girls Baseball League simply because she didn't fit their idea of feminine beauty, which was unfortunate because she was, in fact, a really amazing player. A lot of the players say that, you know, she would do this thing before the games where she would put a bucket at home plate and from the warning track of whatever ballpark she was in, she would throw a softball and get it right into the bucket of that was placed at, you know, home plate, which uh, to the crowds, you know, this was amazing that there was this girl that was able to do that. And she ended up uh, becoming single season home run leader in in the NGBL. And she was also hitting around like 450 her entire career in the NGBL. And eventually she became a manager um, along with another lady. Her name is Wilda Mae Turner. She was probably the best pitcher in the league's history. And she had, uh, according to her nephew, she had an ERA of 0.016. And I've, I found a few newspaper clippings as well that kind of attest to that. So she was rather remarkable and she signed in 46 and she was another lady that eventually became a manager in the league. There was Lois Roberts. She was from Los Angeles, probably one of the faster players in the league and one of the top hitters. And she is remarkable because she played the entire game barefoot. I mean, she had started playing in the mid-1930s and throughout her entire career, she was barefoot. She even played American football in the Los Angeles area barefoot. So she's another remarkable player. Betty Chapman. Betty Chapman was... uh, she broke the color barrier. 
she was hired by the Music Maids in 1950. Black American to play professional softball in the United States. And I think she only played one year, but uh, if the statistics that I uncovered are any indication of how good she was, she was one of the best hitters in the league. She was hitting upwards of 350 at certain points during the season. So she was rather remarkable. Um, another player is Lonnie Stark. She was the top pitcher on the Bluebirds team. She had won numerous softball awards throughout her career. She was a top player in the amateur ranks even before she joined the NGPL. And the fact that she played almost the entire 11 seasons that the National Girls Baseball League existed while also having played about five or six years of amateur softball before that shows you just how good she was. She was an amazing pitcher before uh, Wilda Mae Turner showed up. She was the top pitcher in the league. And then her and Wilda kind of traded that accolade between themselves, you know, for the next, uh, uh, I want to say what, nine years. So they were rather remarkable players in the league. Um, There's so many others that I could think of. There were players that played in the All-American League, like Connie Wisniewski and Andre Wagner. Uh, there was Tony Ann Palermo. There was Irma Bergman, who also played in the All-American League. There was a player named Pat Carson, who was a, one of the top home run hitters and was actually her and Freda Savona were kind of the most feared combination in the league. They both played for the Queens. Um, there was also Alice Kolsky, who was Ed Kolsky's sister, who won the MVP award for the league in 44. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm sure she was good, too. Yeah. Uh, there was Ann, Ann Komezik. She is another pitcher who the... Queens had signed. And really, if you look at the history, the Queens were the most dominant team in the league. I think from 1950 to 1952, they won three titles in a row. And it was because of the caliber player. And Ann was one of their top pitchers. Um, Betty Evans was another player. She came from the Portland area and she was another queen pitcher that was just dominant in the league. So really, uh, there are so many remarkable players. And and you know what, what bothers me most about you know, my project, I came to this, I started in 2009. So when I was still in college, but by that time, so many of these players had passed away, which is rather sad because, you know, I, there are a lot of things about the league that I don't know about. And really I feel it's because I haven't, or I wasn't able to interview these ladies, which kind of disappoints me because there is so much of the league that I still don't know about. And that kind of, that kind of bothers me because I like to be thorough with my research and to not have these players, you know, opinions and experiences on hand, you know, I'm not sure if I'll be doing them justice with this documentary. Yeah. And, and that first, that, that lack of, or, or, uh, uh you know, uh, dwindling of first person accounts, right. Um, uh, you, you can say this for the all American girls professional baseball league and, the remaining uh, folks who were part of that, uh, it seems that, you know, at least a decade or so, maybe even longer before, uh, there was a real effort by uh, some Herculean effort, right, by a number of folks to kind of uh, get as much oral history in the book, so to speak, as, as possible. Uh, and and really, you know, the, the, the movie not hurting the process, um, you know, Ken Burns' baseball not hurting the process, right? 
Um, but you kind of you wonder, especially since this was such a local league in Chicago, that you know that there is just a dearth of that kind of uh, first person uh, memory anymore left to kind of you know uh, get and document. Yeah, and I really think it, it has to do with the fact that it was softball. You know, the All American Girls Baseball League did a great job of of throwing their lot in with baseball, organized baseball, and. You know, women's softball history, I mean, until recently, there really hasn't been much of an account into uh, women's softball history. But before that, I mean, there was such a dearth of information. I think it has to do a lot with, you know, the barnstorming aspect of a lot of the women's softball teams. And also the fact that this was simply a Chicago-centric league. And so a lot of people, even though they were nationally televised at, at certain points, a lot of people still don't know much about this league. And then, you know, individual Hall of Fames, you know, like the Amateur Softball Association had a Hall of Fame, but they only would induct um, amateur players or college softball players or players who played for the national team. So, I mean, they have no inclination to want the professional ranks of their sport involved in their Hall of Fame. And then, you know, the National Baseball Hall of Fame doesn't want them because they played softball. So it really is kind of disappointing that, you know, people would take this approach, especially since the All-American League and the National Girls Baseball League traded so many players back and forth. They, you know, I, I felt that at least they could have acknowledged, you know, both leagues at the same time. And even the other leagues that existed at the time, like the American Girls Baseball Conference. So it's it's kind of a sad Sad, uh, I don't know, sad hand that they were dealt um, because their history was was not formally written down and there wasn't really an effort to include them in anyone else's history, even though they had a very much a shared history. All right. Well, that leads me to my last question. And I get, and it does sort of touch on this. And, and we kind of uh, obsess about sort of this particular part of all of our most of our explorations. That is, where does the legacy sort of reside? Um I think you're answering some of it. Sadly, there's no natural place uh, for some of this to officially reside. But what of like today's uh, fast pitch, right? I mean, uh, I, I do know that there was uh, something that the uh, Chicago Bandits of National Pro Fastball, um, it, that NPF, right? I think that's it. Yes. Um, that kind of had a bit of a throwback kind of game or, or memory to. I, I wonder where that connection is because it seems like it's, maybe needs to be made more that not only the National League, but the All-American League uh, has a relationship with both the NPF uh, and this and Athletes United, which is, you know, uh, excuse me, Athletes Unlimited, sort of a new effort uh, mm -hmm. to professionalize women's sports on a bunch of different levels, including, quote unquote, softball, as we know it today. Uh, is there a direct connection? Could there be more uh, connections made and or history uh, uh, brought back, if you will, to kind of connect the past with uh, the fledgling stillness of professional softball for women today? Well, when the throwback game with the Chicago Bandits was was made, um, I was uh, working for the Chicago Bandits at the time, so that was why that they did that. I, I totally... Ah, you buried the lead. Ah, you're <laughs> the reason. When was yes. that? 2000? Uh, so that was uh, 20, 2012. 2012. So, um, so yeah, so I, you know, honestly, 
I had seen an article where they had one of the former NGBO players throw out the first pitch at one of their games. So I kind of went to them really on a research level to try to get me in contact with that player. And, you know, then they mentioned to me, oh, you know, we have this internship, you know, and, and you know, a lot of what could we do to try to kind of foster this connection, you know, between these players from the past and, you know, your bandits organization. And so the idea came up of uh, having a turn back the clock game, similar to what baseball does. So really um, I, I kind of took the internship. I worked on that game, trying to get former players from the NGBL together. Um, the bandits were so accommodating, you know, trying to get uniforms created and, you know, just trying to help me with, you know, whatever research they could give me or, or getting in contact with people that I wouldn't normally have the means to get in contact with. So that was kind of a perfect storm of, you know, two people in need kind of getting together to try to, you know, create something for these modern fans to kind of be like, oh, you know what, that's cool. You know, we have, you know, this connection with the past now and maybe we can make this an annual thing. Well, and really, there's also the collegiate game. I was watching some uh, some of the uh, regional action uh, last couple of days, the softball tournament for the NCAA. And, you know, it, it's just it's an amazing uh, array of, of talent. I mean, there's there, there have to be dozens of schools that are playing Division One. All right. So I just the whole idea of the quote unquote modern game, whether it be at the collegiate level or at the still fledgling professional level and, and even Olympics, too. Right. Which uh, yeah. when it. When it shows up in the Olympics, uh, I think it's going to stick around now again. Um, it's it it just begs for, I think, what came before. Like, how did this uh, level of just you know of pervasiveness? It didn't come out of nowhere, right? There was there were people and pioneers prior to all this. God forbid you could remember or or know some of that. You know. Yeah. You know, like I said, from the beginning, women were embraced in this sport, which is why I feel, you know, in some ways you can honestly say softball might be a little bit superior to baseball in that regard because, you know, it was a sport for everybody. Now, whether or not, you know, people like softball, though, in general, you know, can it can be debated. I don't think a lot of people, though, are seeing the sport. And so because of that, you know, they come to it thinking that it is lesser than baseball. But I feel I heard it said to me before and I've heard it said by many people. Um, once you see a women's softball game, you're hooked. And I've gotten a few of my friends and my family members hooked on softball. And it is a, a rather remarkable sport. And I feel, you know, there I call the age that the National Girls Baseball League existed and the time before that kind of like the golden age of women's softball. And then in 1956, when they started with the with the women's softball tournament, the world softball tournament with, you know, the United States playing against other countries, I think that kind of started a silver age because there was a lot of um, independent amateur softball teams around the country that were still playing the game at a high level that you could almost call them professional level. And that kind of fostered you know, the from 1956 to the 1970s, when women's softball kind of started gaining momentum in, NC, in the NCAA, I think they were kind of the ones that kept it going. And then finally, you know, when the NCAA adopted softball to today, that was really a huge thing because I'm hearing now that 
uh, NCAA women's softball is a revenue sport. And it's uh, kind of unprecedented, that connection between baseball and softball. Now, women's basketball is a revenue sport, but they have the connection to the men. But women's softball was sort of independent of baseball. So the fact that they were able to accomplish being a revenue sport without baseball's help is rather remarkable. Well, it, I, I think the fact that National Pro Fast Pitch has still hung on uh, as long as it has, even though it's only five, six teams, and now has a, another professional, I wouldn't call it competitor, but it's a different model with this mm-hmm. Athletes Unlimited, more sort of uh, tournament and or even touring kind of uh, based. Uh, I, I think that gives hope to the fact that that the that the, this can be a professional path uh, for some of the better NCAA players, uh, should they choose to to want to go into that direction. And Lord knows there's all kinds of video now uh, opportunities, the cable and, and streaming and stuff to kind of maybe even uh, bring some other additional revenue to it. So I, 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 I seem to, I'm a little bit more, uh, well, I think you are too. I, I'm enthusiastic about uh, the potential for it to, shall we say, rise again professionally. Um, I, um, I just wonder, though, as that happens and assuming that happens, and, and even even the collegiate level, right, the, the explosion of popularity, um, people starting to want to look back, right? And I think that's an opportunity for, uh, you know, look to, to understand this, this a histories, plural, behind, you know, uh, you know, on the backs of, of pioneers come today's, uh, you know, today's uh, uh, successes, right? We see this story over and over again. I got to think that history will come back in some way, shape, or form, be in vogue, right? I think there'll be, especially mm-hmm. in Chicago, right, where where this history is so rich, and the Midwest, where the All-American League was sort of out there. I, these are, you know, these are amazing stories, and it's, it's. It, I want to say everything old is new again, but, you know, th- these were these were pioneers, these players, uh, and in many respects, they could be celebrated once again as they uh, pioneer once again in the modern modern sensibility of the game today. Yes, and I also believe too uh, statistically, I would love to see some of the women of today try to beat the records of some of these women that played in the past. Um, Freda Savona really set the bar high when she played, but I believe, you know, some of these players, if they had that statistical history, you know, behind themselves, that, you know, maybe that would give them even more incentive, you know, to play their best because they have records that need to be broken in the professional ranks. Um, and I also would love to see some, some sort of organization, whether it be like a women's softball of fame or a women's sports foundation hall of fame or something like that acknowledge a lot of these players in softball that play professionally or even some of the barnstorming, you know, women's sports teams like in basketball or in ice hockey that existed, you know, before the Colorado silver bullets. Remember them? They actually yes. played. Yep. Yeah, right. So that's, it's all part of, of sort of that sort of bigger. All right. Let's, we've kept you long enough. Let's uh, now's your chance to promote. How, how do people find this film? Where can they see it and what else are you doing in and around it? And frankly, do you have other projects in mind, too, beyond this? Well, uh, the International Women's Baseball Center has been a huge help in um, trying to promote me and what I'm doing. So you can honestly visit their International Women's Baseball Center webpage. I believe it's internationalwomensbaseballcenter.org is their address. Or you could visit the website for my documentary film, which is National Girls Baseball League, all one word, 
com. And uh, the documentary, unfortunately, the documentary is unfinished, so it hasn't been put out yet. Hopefully, I'm able to change that soon. Um, but once it is out there, I hope to do maybe the film festival circuit so I can, you know, promote the the movie and eventually get these ladies, you know, the recognition that they deserve. Um, also, I believe uh, the International Women's Baseball Center might be having a, a virtual conference. So I might be doing something for them uh, specifically about women's baseball. So I would probably do uh, something about the American Girls Baseball Conference, which is the other league I mentioned that existed during the 40s and 50s. So hopefully I can put something together for them so you guys can also hear about this other league. And then uh, really, um, you know, just just I want people to spread the word about the league. And, you know, maybe I could get a few family members who hadn't heard about my project um, to hear your podcast. And maybe they could contact me and let me know, you know, some of their stories about some of the players that I haven't been able to talk to. So that is uh, another way that you guys can, you know, hopefully help me. Or, you know, I can eventually help them with trying to get the stories told. Um, but as far as that, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm pretty much devoted simply to this project. I'm still doing a lot of research. I'm still trying to hunt down footage. So if anyone out there has footage or, you know, really anything, photos, stories, I'd love to hear from you. All right. Our thanks to Adam. And uh, let's uh, get a lot of uh, sort of descriptional stuff out of the way, because I'm sure uh, a bunch of you are going to be interested in going much, much deeper into this uh, this story uh, as we indeed uh, began to do in our uh, just our little chat. Hence concluded. Uh, first of all, that clip that you heard at the beginning of the uh, proceedings uh, was from uh, Chicago Tonight. That's the uh, uh, evening newscast on uh, local uh, public television station here in Chicago, WTTW, uh, featuring Jeffrey Bear, who has a long-running segment there called Ask Jeffrey. And that question, of course, came from uh, Eva Darty, Darty, I think it was, of Chicago, uh, asking about this league, and I think sort of uh, tipped everything off into, uh, into that segment uh, and then some. Uh, Adam's film that was referenced in that clip uh, that uh, we talked about extensively is still in process. It's called Their Turn at Bat. Uh, and um, I'm sure it's going to be an opus once it's completed. Uh, but if you'd like to follow uh, and or communicate with Adam uh, and uh, the progress of that film, perhaps even uh, contribute to its uh, production and hopefully uh, uh, release uh, ultimately very soon, you can go to his website at National Girls baseball league all one word national girls baseball league.com a lots of uh, great stuff some clips there uh you know various sort of updates and stuff uh, you can also follow adam's exploits for this documentary on twitter at nbgl documentary at nbgl documentary uh, on twitter and uh what else um you can also follow us why not on twitter at good still uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us uh, on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us on our website as well, which is called GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. See what I did there? Uh, you can send us email at 
hello at, wait for it, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to our uh, weekly email newsletter, uh, which is discoverable on our website. D- don't ask me where. It's just that you got to find it. Uh, but once you do, you will uh, just uh, need to enter your name and add uh, email address, and you're good to go. We'll uh, put you on the list. Uh, what else? Thanks to Jerry Payne, of course, uh, for his efforts this week. We really put him through his paces for sure uh, this time around, and we appreciate it uh, to no end. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. And we appreciate you, of course, uh, for listening all the way through, as we uh, love uh, you to do each and every week. And until next week, uh, we bid you a fond adieu. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.